This episode of The Impulse Form is brought to you in part by Mastermind sponsor, Coach Chris Cachera. Discover Coach Chris's Regenesis 360, a lifestyle concierge center located in Pismo Beach, California. Visit Regenesis360.com to sign up for a complimentary ARX resistance training session. That's Regenesis360.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Impulse Forum where imagination, education, and inspiration meet to create enterprise. I'm the Impulse Director and your host, Kevin Colton, with another episode of the Impulse Forum. I'm really excited today to bring to you all, all you Impulse Chasers out there, Sam Anthony. I just heard this guy speak at the Be Strong Life Club on Napomo High School campus on Thursday. And he has a message that I think we all need to hear today. And so I just met him and it just kind of worked out. He was available. So we're glad to have him here uh, with us. Sam Anthony is a professional speaker. He's a personal trainer and lifestyle coach in long-term recovery from substance use disorder who uses his personal experiences with drugs, alcohol, depression, anxiety, suicidal behavior. He's been through a lot, folks. Recovery, mental illness, spiritual fitness, and physical fitness to educate and motivate others. And after everything we've been through as a society in the last year and a half, um, I just think that you're going to be very encouraged to hear what this man has to share and what and uh, coming out of what he's been through. So welcome to the program, Sam. Kevin, thank you so much for having me, man. It's great to be here. Uh, It's my first time on the West Coast and uh, it's been uh, nothing but exciting so far. So it's great to be here. Thank you. So we usually start out talking, taking our guest speakers to when they were in high school. And I, and I know that you have a, that's where your the trouble began. And uh, we want to hear from you. Usually we say, what were your gifts and talents and things that you were interested in? (laughs) Um, So why don't you start there and then just take us on your journey? Oh man. Uh, what were my gifts and talents, man? Honestly, I don't feel like I had any. I mean, if you would have, if you asked me now how I felt about myself in high school, um, and I said this to somebody once, I was like, all right, well, Sam Anthony in high school, I wasn't smart. I wasn't funny. I wasn't popular. I wasn't charming. I wasn't athletic. Um, I I felt like nobody liked me. And, And somebody said, well, that's not true. But the reality is that's how I felt about myself. So it was it was true to me. It was my reality. Um, I mean, I, I took my first drink when I was 12 years old. Uh, people hear that. The assumption is, well, he probably came from a broken home, divorced parents, neglected, abused, addiction probably runs in the family. And, you know, that's just not true. You know, I grew up in the Catholic Church. My parents are still married to this day. Um, no neglect, no abuse, no addiction to my family. But um, growing up, I was full of anxiety. Um, every day made me anxious. Waking up, going to school, talking to girls, talking to anybody, really. I didn't have any social skills. You know, if you would have asked me my name, you know, back in middle school, high school, I probably would have stuttered out of fear of what you would have thought about me because that's how I felt all the time. Like, I don't know what you thought about me, but I was always very concerned with what I thought other people thought about me. So if I thought you thought I was stupid, I felt stupid. If I thought you thought I was ugly, I felt ugly. Um, but on the flip side of that too, if I thought you thought I was cool, I might've felt a little bit cool just for a second, but unfortunately that didn't happen very often. Um, you know, that, that behavior of mine progressed going into high school. Um, I took my first cigarette out of my dad's pack at 13 years old, uh, smoked weed for the first time at 14 years old. Um, at 16, I got addicted to prescription pain pills. 17, I started to experiment with ecstasy. Um, and then, you know, I barely, that behavior of mine continued so much. I actually didn't even graduate high school on time. I had to go to summer school to get my diploma. After high school, I got addicted to cocaine. And um, I have to say after that, you know, things started to get really, really bad. Can you go back to the pain pills? 
Yeah. Was that something that happened, an injury, or did you just get, or was it prescri- prescribed to you? Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you hear my full story, you know, this all started off, you know, the drinking, the cigarettes, the weed all started off as I'd say self-medication and peer pressure, you know, just trying to fit in. You know, if I thought it was going to make you like me, there was a pretty good chance I was willing to do it. If that meant stealing, if it meant smoking, you know, if it meant making fun of somebody else, if I thought it was going to, you know, get you to like me, cool, let's go ahead and do that. When I was 16, um, I tore some ligaments in my ankle and I had surgery. The doctor sent me home with a bottle of Percocet and I took one pill and I got addicted right away. I fell in love right away. Now, you know, I I say the word addicted, you know, you you heard how it started off, but there's some things, I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care how much money your parents have. You just can't fight the addiction. It's very easy to tell yourself that you're going to take just one of something or do something just once. Um, But oftentimes, whatever one is gets in your body, you lose the ability to control when you're going to take your next one or when you're going to take your last one. Uh, For me, it's usually I want to end up in the ICU or in handcuffs. You know, so I took one pill, fell in love. And, you know, I, I have to admit, you know, I wasn't very academic, but I'm a pretty smart guy. If one is good two must be better, right? Um, more is not better. More just means more. And I mean, if you know my story, more almost killed me later on. So I related to that when you were sharing that part of your story, uh, when you were talking about how when you drank, suddenly you didn't have inhibitions. And that was what I experienced too, 15, 16 years old. Suddenly I wasn't worried about what people thought about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I took that drink, man, I didn't care. There was no more anxiety, depression. I didn't care what you thought about me. And it worked for a little bit, until it didn't work anymore, until I realized that, you know, after a while, I still was comparing my insides to other people's outsides, even when I was under the influence. That's right. It only works for a while. Yeah. And a very short while at that. So continue on. So you're, you're, graduate high school, you're going into, did you go to college? What happened next? No, I had no, no, um, uh, ambitions of going to college or any secondary education after high school. Um, my whole thing was, I just wanted to be left alone. I wanted to go out and I can't even say party because I wasn't even partying. I wasn't a social drinker. You, you know, very rarely we're going to catch me at a happy hour at a frat party. Um, at some point, I think it was around 1920. Um, yeah, I, I, especially when I was addicted to cocaine, I was going to some bars and lounges and clubs. And I realized that I couldn't really get down the way that I wanted to. Somewhere around 19 what? Around 19 or 20 years old. 19 or 20 years old. Yeah. So um, I realized that I couldn't really get down the way that I wanted to. Like I realized that, you know, the bouncers were starting to notice that I was going into the bathroom every 20 minutes. So I actually just stopped going out and, and I was at home getting drunk and high by myself. And I don't know if anybody listening has ever done that before, but it's a lonely place and I really don't wish it upon anybody. Um, you know, I, I thought that my problems had a lot to do with the people I was hanging out with. Um, I thought it had to do with the places that I was going. Honestly, I thought a lot of my problems had to do with New Jersey, which is where I, I was born and raised and graduated high school from. So I figured if I can get out of there, you know, maybe, maybe a geographical cure would, you know, would be better. Um, things that, things would start to change for me a little bit. So I left New Jersey and I moved to Virginia because my sister had lived there. And I figured, you know, let's go there. Let's start over. Uh, And something very interesting happened after I moved. Uh, Nothing at all, you know, because everywhere I went, there I was. I couldn't run away from myself, no matter how hard I tried, because my problems had nothing to do with New Jersey. They all had to do with Sam. So you, uh, you were out on your own, you, what did you get a place and then what happened next? So I was living with my sister and, um, she had a few, you know, few simple rules for me. You know, you gotta be working, you gotta be saving money and there's no drinking in my home. The first two were easy. (laughs) You know, it was easy to work. It was easy to save a little bit of money, but that no drinking part, man, uh, I, I just, I couldn't figure that out. Uh, so eventually she asked me to leave and I did. And, um, I ended up moving out. I was bartending at the time. And, um, how old were you? Uh, at that time I moved in 2004. So I was about 25. Um, so I, uh, bartending at the time, uh, I ended up moving out. Just, I'm renting a room in a house. I got a mattress on the floor. Uh, I got a nightstand next to me. I got a few bucks in the bank. And I mean, literally if they came down to, I could buy food or I can buy booze. Most of the time I was buying booze. Um, I mean, things started to get really, really dark. I mean, I was just drinking myself into a blackout every night. I'm, I'm pretty sure I overdosed once or twice, but luckily I woke up, you know, while I was living by myself. And um, 
I was very alone. Um, I had a roommate that moved in uh, a few weeks after I did, and he uh, rented the room down the hall, and his name was Jesse. And uh, you heard me tell Jesse's story the other day. And me and Jesse had a lot in common. And what I mean by that is we like to drink and we like to get high together. And that's what we did every night when I would get off my bartending shift. Um, but one night when I got off, there was something different. Because when I got home that night, there was a bunch of ambulances in front of my house. And that night, Jesse's brother ran up to me and he had tears in his eyes. And he told me that Jesse died by suicide. And I, I was just in shock because I was like, what do you mean he died? Like I was just with him last night. And I started to ask myself all the questions that I think a lot of people that have been through this experience do, which was, what did I miss? What could I have done different? Was there a sign that he was giving me? Was there something I could have said? And I didn't learn this until years later, but somebody taught me the three C's of helping other people. And the three C's of helping other people are this. Whatever is going on with somebody else, you did not cause it. Whatever is going on with somebody else, you cannot change it. And whatever is going on with somebody else, you cannot cure it. But I didn't know that at the time. And, you know, I never really needed a reason to drink or take drugs before. It could have been a good day. It could have been a bad day. I might have gotten promoted. I might have gotten fired. I might have gotten a date. I might have gotten dumped. It's just kind of how I handled life every day. Um, so after Jesse died, it's what I did. It's the only way I knew how to deal with those feelings. And it's usually at that point when people would ask, dude, why can't you stop? Like, what's going on with you that you can't stop? You've been arrested several times. You've been through a couple treatments. Like, you just lost your roommate. Dude, just stop. And, you know, the answer to that is very simple. If you knew how I felt inside, if you knew how lonely I was when I wasn't drinking or taking drugs, if you knew the feelings of desperation, uh, the shame, the guilt, the fear, you wouldn't ask me why I did it. It was the only way I knew how to wake up and leave the house and go to bed every night, you know? But... If anybody out there is listening and understands what I mean when I say that, and you haven't really been paying attention to anything else, please listen right now. If you knew how I felt inside, once I finally opened up and told somebody how I felt inside, it was hands down the most powerful thing that I've ever done in my entire life. Because I've been told that you're only as sick as your secrets. And if that's pretty, if that's true, then I was really sick. I was dying inside. But I was always so afraid to go up and tell somebody else what was going on with me. You know, I couldn't go up to somebody and tell them I'm so depressed. I don't want to get out of that every day. And, you know, nobody's going to understand I've got so much anxiety. I don't want to leave the house in the morning. There's no way anybody's going to understand why I drink and take the amount of pills that I do. But once I actually told somebody those things, you know, in a 12-step meeting, through counseling, through treatment, um, you know, a confidential, uh, you know, conversation that I had with somebody I liked, trusted, and respected, not only was I not labeled and judged, I was congratulated on having the courage to speak up and get the help that I so desperately needed, you know? But by the time I learned that, unfortunately, it was almost too late. I wanted to ask you about that because how did you find that person that you were able to open up to? You mentioned some things, but how did you find so them? So for me, my first experience was actually when I went to 12-step recovery. So I went to my first meeting. Like what uh, led you there? Like by yourself or, I mean, did you just get to the... Because you've mentioned you've mentioned some jail time, you've mentioned these different experiences. How what led you to the twelve step where you're like now I'm looking for help? So that's a very good question. Now I don't care what leads you there. I don't care if the court system sent you there, if your parents sent you there. In my particular case, the very first time I went to a meeting was because I got a fight with my girlfriend and I was getting in trouble at work. Um, but the thing is, I was there, even though I wasn't really ready to be there. I was still there, and it was planting seeds. I wasn't really, I wasn't all in yet, but it was planting seeds. And I started to hear some things that made sense to me. And I started to see some other men in there acting a certain way that I respected. And they were acting a certain way without a drink in their hand. They were acting a certain way and carrying themselves and speaking when they weren't under the influence. And when I started to see this, we started to have conversations. And, I, and it wasn't a conversation with a counselor. It was a conversation with somebody that knew how I felt, that had thought the things I thought, did the things I did, and been the places I've been. And that is so powerful. I am a huge advocate of counseling. I'm also a huge advocate of peer support because there are two totally different avenues of recovery for everybody. Wow. So 
you you start you opened up to one of these guys or the mm-hmm. whole group or yeah well I open I mean you you speak in a group but oftentimes somebody will come up to you after a meeting in this case this guy's name was Jim and uh, you know he came up to me and he gave me my first big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and you know he started talking to me and you know he he had a leather jacket and a motorcycle and I was like I right, man this, this this dude's pretty cool and um, you know he he understood how I felt and I started having conversations with him and as I continued to go to more meetings um, I met more people like that. And I started to going to um, church. And uh, when I started going to church, I saw men in there that were carrying themselves a certain way and, you know, speaking a certain way. And, you know, they were able to get their point across without every other every other word being four letters. And I was like, wow, like, that's actually pretty cool that you can actually get a point across without having having to, to speak like that. And, you know, when, once I, once I started to, and I started to realize like, okay, these are the kinds of people I need to, to surround myself. And I heard something the other day, you know, I think most people would rather follow bad company in the wrong direction than go by themselves in the right direction. And it's just out of fear of being alone. And that was me all my life. You know, like I said, man, if it's going to make you like me, let's go do it. Even if it's something wrong. You know, so if anybody can understand that, it's better to go in the right direction by yourself than in the wrong direction with bad company. One of my uh, messages in youth ministry and over the years is who's in your crew? Like, and and a lot of, I think it, when whenever you find that, whether it's in eighth grade, in high school or in college, but you've got to find who's in your crew, your band of brothers, your group of guys that are going to be with you, that you can share those experiences with, that you can share honestly what you're going through and the guys that have your back. And it sounds like you discovered that. Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways to say that, man. Birds of the same feather flock together. You're the sum of the five people that you hang out with the most. You show me your friends. I'll show you your future. I mean, there's so many different speakers that are going to touch on that and say it in a certain way. But the reality is it's true, you know? And, And we like to think like, nah, man, these people are my ride or die. Like that's my day one. Look, let me tell you something. When I was in jail, my dealers did not come visit me. Okay. When I overdosed, those people that I was using with and buying drugs from and hanging out with and partying with, they didn't come check on me to see if that was okay. They weren't putting money on my books. They weren't checking in on my wife. Okay. Those are not your real friends. They're just not. It's a, it's sad it takes going through that to discover that truth. But once you do, it's like that's what and that's what keeps you. Uh, from relapse, which I want to get into later, yeah. but I want to hear more about where you're, um, what happened. So you, we have a saying in our, in the impulse form, engage your community. And that's, this is an aspect of that, that is kind of foundational. Um, when we say engage your community, as far as your career, we're just talking about the programs and the things that are available for you to get connected with other people of like minds to invest in your gifts and talents and skills. So you, but in this case, we're talking about a community, your network, your people that are going to walk with you through life. And that is just as important. Having mentors, having um, you know, people that are your family apart from family. And it sounds like that was a major turning point for you. Absolutely. We have the families that we're born to and we have the families that we create. And don't for one second think that you owe loyalty to anybody for any reason at any time. It is okay to outgrow people that had an opportunity to grow with you. If you've got somebody that's constantly bringing you down, it's okay to move on from that person. It really is. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you've got people that are bringing you down and they're constantly telling you that you're no good or, you know, they're, they're, they're going in a direction that you're just not, every time you go out with that person, you're just not sure how that night is going to end up. It's okay to not go out with that person. It's okay to 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 move on. Look, the people that I mean, I don't really stay in touch with anybody I went to school with. I know that's not everybody's experience, man. Some people they got friends that they had, they met in middle school and they're still friends to this day. And if those people were positive influences in your life, man, that's good for you. That was not my experience. Uh, there was people that I needed to outgrow. Now, when I started doing well, those people had an opportunity to follow me because you can either be influenced or you can be the influence. You know, you can have somebody bring you down or you can have the opportunity to bring somebody else up. And, you know, the choice is yours at the end of the day. That was uh, the key to my own turning around. It was like I had a friend and we were on this same, 
we were doing drugs, we were partying, and it was like, I got to play, I can't go that way with you, and I can't watch you destroy yourself. And, and then he had an experience, and then he actually <laughs> uh, started going to church, and, and so then I went to check out and see what he was doing because I thought he had joined a cult. Hmm. And that was, and then I discovered there's a whole group of people that don't live like these other people and they're not tearing each other down. They're building each other up. And it was the first time I'd seen brotherly love. I like how you said, there's the first time that I experienced a group of people that weren't living like this. And that was my experience. I mean, you find what you're looking for. Like, I remember when I was smoking and drinking, I'm like, dude, everybody smokes and drinks. I don't know anybody that smokes and drinks nowadays. Not because they're alcoholics and drug addicts. It's just, it's not the people that I hang around with. It's not what I'm looking for. And you, you, you can find what you're looking for really easy. And if you just want to believe that this is all there is, then that, I mean, that, that's a very narrow mindset to have because there's so much more than that. So continue on. We have you after you, this was a turning point. You shared your, you were able to share some dark stuff with people and they didn't judge you. They accepted you as you are and actually started walking with you through your. Yeah, they sure recovery. did. But here's the thing. And, and I realized there's a motivation doesn't last. Um, it, it's something that you have to do every day. It's something that you need to grind out. Um, and the best way that I can, you know, uh, give you a visual, be like this, right? I'm assuming that everybody listening right now took a shower yesterday or this morning. The shower that you took this morning is not gonna keep you clean tomorrow. It'd probably benefit y'all to shower tomorrow and the next day, right? Well, it's the same thing with your mental fitness, your spiritual fitness, your physical fitness. The workout that I did yesterday is not gonna keep me fit three weeks from now. It would probably benefit me to get a couple more workouts in between now and then, right? So I didn't know this at the time. You don't graduate from overcoming your problems with mental health. You don't graduate from overcoming your struggles with that, the bottle or, or the drugs or, any, or, or what happened to you when you were a kid or the problems that you're having with finances or pornography or in your marriage. There's some things that you just need to work on daily. I didn't know that. And as I started to get away from the things that were keeping me well or right-sized, I started to fall back into some of those old habits. And, um, you know, unfortunately things got really dark for me. And in 2013, I almost lost my life to an overdose. Um, my wife came home, uh, found me in a chair, slumped over, barely breathing. Uh, I woke up in the ICU with a tube down my throat with my wife standing over me saying, honey, honey, you're in the hospital, you overdosed. So it's 2013, you, you're married now. How old are you? And and between your recovery and when you got married, was this all happening at the same time? Like, give us some context. So when my wife met me, we were unfamiliar with, you know, what it really meant to deal with alcoholism and addiction and depression. And, you know, she's kind of the same thing. Like, well, you know, I went to a couple of meetings. I'm sober for a couple of months. Like, I guess I'm okay. Like, and, and that's kind of the impression that a lot of people have. Like, well, if I send my kid to treatment, they're going to come back and they're going to be fine. No, they're not. Okay. You're going to, they need a very structured and secure aftercare plan plan. Okay. You can't just, and that's why taking people that struggle with addiction and popping them in jail doesn't do anything. Cause you have to understand alcohol and drugs wasn't my problem. It was the absence of alcohol and drugs when I wasn't dealing with my other problems the way I was supposed to, that was actually my problem. Alcohol and drugs was my solution. So when you do that and you take somebody away and you lock them up, you put them in treatment for 30 days, you put them in jail and you don't offer any treatment, you don't offer any mental health services, you don't offer any counseling, you're actually making the problem worse. And that's kind of where I went. Like I stepped away from the 12-step meetings. We, you know, we, we got away from the church and we got busy with life. And then all of a sudden something happened. I didn't know how to handle it. And like, boom, I was down the same path that I was going before. Um, you know, luckily my wife has been an absolute rock in my life. And I'd be dead literally and figuratively if not for her. And she was willing to stick with me, support me, um, really honor the vows that we took through sickness and in health because she realized that I wasn't a bad person making bad decisions. I was a sick person that needed help getting well. And you know, at the same time, the things that I were going through were affecting her and her mental health. So not only did I have to go through my counseling, she needed to go through her counseling and we needed to go through our counseling. 
And luckily I had a woman that was willing to do all that with me. And we just celebrated 10 years of marriage and we just wrote a book. And you're gonna hear multiple times from her throughout that book as to where is the, the loved one's role in the support and the recovery of somebody going through these struggles. And I mean, it's just, it, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be able to, to walk this life with her and use our experiences to help somebody else. So when did you, what year did you guys get married? Uh, 2011. See how quick that was? You yeah. guys take notes. <laughs> yeah, 2011. And then two years later. Uh-huh. She oh, just graduated man. nursing school. And she f- comes home and finds you. Mm-hmm. And it was an accidental. It, I wasn't trying to kill myself that night. I really wasn't. But there's a difference between suicidal behavior and being suicidal. Like my friend Jesse was suicidal. And when we hear that term, we, we picture somebody like him writing their final letter, bottle of pills in their hands, ready to take their own life. And that's one version of it. It's the last step. And I'm going to tell anybody, everybody listening right now, there's nothing romantic about it. The other side was me. And if you look up the definite, if you grab a dictionary right now and look up suicidal, it says being destructive to one's own interests. That was me taking handfuls of pills, washing it down with a fifth of vodka, not caring how it affected me or anybody else. Now, if you're listening, you gotta be asking yourself, well, wait a second, it didn't start with handfuls of pills and a fifth of vodka, did it? No, it didn't. It started with one drink that came from my parents' liquor cabinet at 12 years old. It started with one pill that came from the doctor at 16. Now, there's a lot of pills in my story and I've been addicted to a lot of things and this is not me bragging because it's nothing worth bragging about, but I was a pack of Newports a day smoker for over a decade. I was a wake and bake weed smoker for over a decade. Ecstasy, powder cocaine, prescription pills, Xanax, Adderalls, Oxy, hands down the hardest stuff I ever had to get off in my entire life. They almost killed me, literally and spiritually. But I realized through some treatment, some counseling, um, and, and a lot of God that it wasn't about getting really high or getting really low, going up, going down, anti-anxiety, antidepressants, anti-pain meds. It was all anti-SAM medication. I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. It's the only way that I knew how to wake up and go to bed every day. Mm. Oxycontin uh, took out uh, my best man. Mm. And uh, so I know... um, the pain of seeing somebody and experiencing that loss, um, and how, and how addictive it is, um, because it's pain medication, but it's unsupervised. Mm -hmm. I actually heard a very good argument that the prescription pain pills, your Oxycontins, your Roxy sets, it's actually more dangerous than heroin because it's more consistent. When you get a bag of heroin, you might have 5%, you might have 13%, you might have salt. You have no idea. If I'm taking 30 milligram Roxy's 10 times a day, 10 times a day, my body is expecting 30 milligrams every single time. So when you get away from that, it's actually harder because your body chemically and mentally knows what the expectation is. Whereas the expectation with a bag of heroin, unfortunately, there's no quality control going on there. So I've actually heard an argument that some people say, oh, heroin's so much worse. Well, there's an argument to say that the pills are actually more dangerous because of the, the potency and the consistency of it. And plus it's unsupervised. The fact yeah. that it's that much given to you and it's unsupervised. It is. And, you then know, when, you're, and when you're experiencing uh, the high, that's when people tend to accidentally overdose because they don't know. Yeah, because they forget they where they more are. Is, they think more is better. I mean, I mean, exactly I, again, what you said. Yeah. I, I've honestly taken I've honestly taken twenty to twenty five pills of Percocet in a day, and that's not me bragging. I, I'm not proud of that. I look back and I'm like, I can't believe that I, I woke up the next day. But wow! So your wife comes home. So that was a, obviously another turning point. And at some, I, I do want to get to the to the to the book. So we'll head there. Uh-huh. And then uh, because you guys wrote this together and um, it, it is amazing that a marriage can survive these things and which tells yeah. you the, the power of love in, in your, in your marriage and your relationship. And, and again, the grace of God providing you with somebody, uh, providing you people. Yeah. God put a lot of wonderful people in my life. He really did. And I'm very, very grateful for that. So what happened after that? 
Uh, so after that, things got really good, man. I mean, we moved out of the little basement apartment that we were renting into a nice condo. Uh, we got a dog. Um, I started, I uh, got a job as a personal trainer because I was always into fitness. I mean, after my overdose, I was very serious about my recovery. I knew God saved my life for a reason and it wasn't going back to living that lifestyle. Um, you know, we took the honeymoon that we always want to take. Um, things got really good. Things got so good that I forgot how bad they were. And uh, one of my favorite lines in 12-step literature is that we will not remember the pain and suffering day, weeks or even days ago. And I think that goes for, for anything. Like, I'm not going to remember what it was like to wake up in the ICU choking on that tube. I'm not going to remember what it was like going through treatment. I'm not going to remember that feeling that I felt when I, I heard that Jesse died. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's true. You know, we don't really remember the shame and the guilt. And um, as things started to get really good and I forgot how bad things were, it was very easy for me to get busy and once again, forget that this is a daily grind. And um, I ended up having a relapse. My addiction took me a place I didn't wanna go. I stole some pills from a friend of mine and I actually ended up getting arrested for breaking and entering. And I, I was facing some serious charges. I thought I was going to jail for a very long time. Um, and that's when I started writing uh, my original book because I thought that would be a very good way to keep myself busy while I was in jail. Uh, luckily, because of my good behavior, I took a lot, of, uh, a lot of positive actions before I had to go to court and I had a very good lawyer. The judge ended up having uh, a little bit of mercy on me and suspended two years and 11 months of my sentence. So I was sentenced to three years in jail. Um, she said, I'm suspending two years and 11 months of your sentence. You're gonna go to jail for 30 days. You're gonna be on probation for the rest of the time. When you get out, two years and 11 months and uh, good behavior in, good behavior out, no positive drug screens, nothing like that. And you'll be a free man again. And um, that's exactly what I did. And, uh, you know, I stayed uh, sober all through that. And that's when I finished a book, uh, my original book, which is similar to the one we have now, but um, the new one has a lot more takeaways and a lot more actionable items for the reader, whereas before it was just kind of my story. And my story, I think a lot of people could relate to it, but we wanted the, the reader to have something to walk away with, which is what the new book is about, and which is why we redid it. And things were really, really good. I actually, um, that's when I started my speaking career because um, I thought that God was saying like, okay, you know, you've got this book now, now what? You know, what are you gonna do now, Sam? How else are you gonna help people? So I started speaking. And um, that's a whole other story to get into. I don't know if we have that much time to really talk about how I started my speaking career, but long story short, um, I spoke at a local school once and when I walked out of there, I didn't know how, I didn't know where, and I didn't know when. I just knew that that's what I was being called to do. I didn't realize there was a whole career business industry around speaking. Um, so I did some research, talked to some people. I realized that if I was asking somebody for help and they didn't want to answer my questions, I was asking the wrong person. Um, I found some mentors in the industry. Um, they kind of guided me along and answered some questions, gave me some pointers. And um, that's how I ended up here in California talking to you. And things were really, really good until Friday the 13th, 2020. Because this funny thing called COVID happened and it turned my life upside down. You know, uh, I wanna I wanna get into that, but I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, because um, you start out saying, and I'm not being argumentative, but you start out saying, um, I didn't have any gifts, talents, skills. I, I would say you didn't know what those were because obviously you have a gifted communicator you, and I imagine if you had had a different experience in high school that if, and somebody gave you an opportunity to write, that that was also there. And I don't know what your writing experience is like, but maybe just briefly, when you wrote that book, what was it like for you to write? Do you enjoy the experience? Um, is it something that just flows out of you? I mean, what what, what was that like briefly? So because it's interesting. A, I've, I've actually got some chills right now because, yeah, I did write a lot in high school, but I wrote a lot of dark poetry. And one of the dark poems that I wrote is actually in the book, and it's titled Nothing and Nobody. And it's the one poem that I wrote as a teenager that I actually remembered word for word. And it goes, he feels he is not, he feels he needs something because he feels he is nothing. For what reason does he have to live with nothing to uphold and nothing to give? It becomes more impossible for him to cope. It feels like he is the one on dope to live, to love and try to survive. He's tired of the game and just getting by. Life is the game in which he plays, taking his miserable day by day. He has his own hell in which nobody shares because nobody knows and nobody cares. I wrote that as a 16 year old boy. 
and I put that poem in the book. So I guess looking back, yes, writing always came naturally to me. Um, I didn't pay that much attention in, in my reading and literature classes. So my commas and peers aren't always exactly where they're supposed to be, <laughs> which is why I um, hired a very good editor to go over this book. But my, my thoughts do flow out very easy, yes. So I want to I want to reiterate that to our audience that um, we're not it and most of our speakers say this one way or another one of our guests that our path to where we're supposed to be as far as our career is not linear it's it's a very windy road like a roller coaster ride but my my philosophy and I stick into it is we are born with these. We are born with these uh, skills and talents, and and they're there. And whether we discover them as a teenager or we discover them as a somebody in their 30s and 40s, that this is all you know what I'm called to do. Um, that's what we when we when we tap into that. That's when the gift of God comes into operation, mm-hmm. and suddenly doors open, and obviously doors begin to open for you, and and to be able to. To, and I and I heard you. I think I th- think you said this: beauty for ashes, or God turn it. You know, giving you so much more out of something that was so dark, and just I multiplying. say that He took the ugliest, nastiest, and darkest parts of my life, and He didn't just fix them because that would have been too easy. He actually turned them into something beautiful. Now, I don't advise people chasing drugs, alcohol, arrest, and death to try to figure out where they need to be. But if that is your experience up until now. Find out how you can take that and use it to help somebody else. And that's hands down the most rewarding thing that I've ever done in my entire life. And I think that's part of getting out of your own mind and and the darkness of your own mindset is being able to look around and seeing the trouble that other people are in and that you have a role to move somebody out of their darkness and, and lock arms together and move out of that. I'm not going to say, I spoke at three different places uh, over the last 48 hours. And I'll tell you, at one of those places, I had a young lady come up to me in tears after I got done speaking. And she said that, you know, everything I was talking about really hit home to her because she had tried to kill herself and she failed. And I got on three airplanes, traveled through four airports, 13 hours, left a beautiful wife and three boys at home all to stand here on the West Coast to be able to tell her that she didn't fail, God's just not done with her yet. That made this trip, if, if I do nothing else positive while I'm here, that was it. My, my time here was worth it. Okay, so I want to go back to, okay, after we haven't talked about what you were doing for work all this time, so uh, what was your wife's expectation of how you were going to provide for her when you guys got married in 2011, you said? Yeah, so in 2011, um, I had a couple odd end jobs. I was working for UPS, and I worked for an online education company called K-12, and then uh, after my overdose, um, I realized, like I said, that God saved my life for a reason, and I always was interested in fitness, and I always wanted to become a personal trainer, but I was always too busy getting loaded to actually study for my certification. Um, so after I got out of the hospital, I literally quit my job um, and studying became my full-time job, which was new to me because that was never something I was into. 30 days later, I started working at a personal trainer at a uh, gym in Ashburn. And I've been in the fitness industry since 2013. I've uh, worked at two different gyms between now and then. And then now I actually um, built my entire garage into a gym and I train out of my home in Virginia. And a lot of the people that I train are actually youth because a lot of parents know my background. I've done a lot of speaking in, um, you know, community forums and schools and panel discussions in my, uh, you know, my, my county and my adjacent county. Um, so parents will actually have their kids come and train with me, not only for the fitness side, but just also to have some sort of a positive role model in their life as well, which um, I absolutely love doing. So this is 2013 on you're in the fitness industry and ne- and then you had mentioned something what was the first speaking engagement or what 
when did you start writing your first book and when did the speaking engagement happen? Like, give us a... So 2015, um, I started writing the book. And again, that was really just to keep busy. I spent 30 days in jail. Luckily, I was very open and honest with my employer about my history and stuff like that. So my job was waiting for me when I got out. So I went right back to the gym that I was working at as a sit, uh, fit, assistant fitness director, um, you know, sales, personal training. I'm still writing the book. And then when I got done with the book, I spoke at a local high school in my town. Um, and again, and I just absolutely fell in love with that. That was the best high that I've ever had. And so I just continued to pursue that. I actually ended up doing a TEDx talk at TEDx Ashburn, um, which is, you could watch that on my website or on YouTube. And, um, you know, the, from then on there, then on out, my speaking career started to grow and I started speaking at more schools locally, started to uh, gain a little bit of popularity out of state. And I've been to New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Florida, Illinois. I'm here in California. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of good things. God's put a lot of great opportunity in my life to turn my mess into a message to help other people. And so you, we come up to, um, and I, this is something that in your, in your message the other day that really spoke to me as well was your honesty about, um, and just being open about how COVID, the COVID shutdown affected you. So what was the date you mentioned? Friday it? the 13th, January, 2020. So the beginning of 2020 was the height of my speaking career. I mean, from, from popularity to bookings to finances, like I was on fire, like Q1 for me, I looked at what I had on the books and I was like, I had imposter syndrome. I was just like, I, I can't believe this is happening right now. Like, this is so cool. And then um, Friday the 13th, 2020, uh, Trump announced the state of emergency. Uh, that was Friday, Saturday, Sunday went by. On Monday, my kid's daycare closed and I became a stay-at-home dad overnight. Uh, I love my kids, but it's just not what I signed up for. And then every single event that I had on the book for the rest of the year canceled, which also meant that every piece of income that I had on the books was not coming in. You know, I can give you a lot of reasons why I relapsed. Uh, the church is shut down. I couldn't go to church. Uh, the 12-step meetings were closed. I can only do it online. Uh, the gyms were closed. I couldn't go. Um, I was stuck at home with my kids and I couldn't go out. Um, I was tired of smiling at people through my mask and then not being able to see it. And then smiling at people when I wasn't wearing a mask when I really didn't mean it. I can give you all the excuses in the world. The reality looking back is I didn't pivot. I did not adapt to those changes the way that I should have. And I allowed myself to sulk and just kind of be in those sorrows a little bit too long. And what I thought was going to be a week or two turned into a month or two, turned into a year, turned into 18 months. And, uh, you know, things got really, really dark for me for a little while. I was scheduled to speak in California at a conference called Knowing You Matter um, for a couple called Daryl and Cindy who lost their son Mikey to suicide. And that event got postponed, not canceled, but postponed. And honestly, knowing that I had to bounce back and speak at that event saved me in a lot of ways. And uh, it actually was kind of almost God-inspired because I can, got connected with an organization out here called Be Strong and uh, Everyday Ministries. And I was able to turn one speaking event into three. And if COVID never happened, I never would have met that young lady that told me she tried and failed. So, you know, sometimes you, you my, I had a counselor used to tell me all the time and said, Sam, if we could see the path that God had laid out for us, we probably wouldn't walk it. And if you would have told me on Friday the 13th that God was going to shut my life down for 18 months, I was going to be a stay-at-home dad, I wasn't going to be able to go anywhere, I was going to relapse. But Sam, after that, man, things are going to get really, really good. So just hang in there. Dude, I don't know if I would have walked that path. I just don't. But I'm glad I'm here. So, uh, Sam, um, well, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, um, and obviously you're an incredible, you have an incredible uh, gift of communication, both writing and speaking and, and just the way God has used you, you know, is so powerful. And I'm, and I'm personally blessed by it. I, one of the things that you keep coming back to is that daily grind, and having to organize your life, structure your life in such a way that it's like this, I'm dealing with this today. And I think there's thousands and thousands of people that can relate to that and need to hear it. It's like, you're not the, the way of freedom 
is kind of like a day-by-day choice. So what's your daily life like? Like how do you, how do you set up to keep yourself from relapsing? What's, what's, what are the strategies that are in your life and the people that are in your life? Like what, when you start to go down that road, talk to, to talk to the teenager that is like going, I, I keep, or the, even the adult that's like, I keep falling back into this and I've got my recovery program. And I got, it's like, but I'm discouraged because I keep going back, like speak to them. So First thing, the three things that I need to focus on the most are physical fitness, spiritual fitness, and mental fitness. You guys probably heard me touch on that, but let me break it down for you. So my spiritual fitness is my religion. It's my relationship with God. You know, that's got to come first. When I put God first, everything else that comes second in my life is first class. You know, when I lose sight of God, that's when I lose sight of everything that's important to me. My mental fitness is my recovery. It's my relationship with my sponsors, with 12-step recovery, with treatment, with counselors, with therapy, with other men that I consider mentors in my life that I know, trust, like, and respect because they have something that I want and I'm not talking about the car they drive or the pretty wife. My physical fitness is the way I take care of myself. I was not an athlete in high school. And when I say fit, people think fitness and they think, oh, well, I got to work out to, to lose weight or to get bigger, to get a squat booty, whatever it is. Look, when I work out to feel better versus look better, I actually find that I achieve both. I don't work out now to have a big chest or six pack abs. I work out to help myself feel better because when I do that, I'm able to, I have more energy. I have less anxiety. It helps with my depression. It helps me sleep better. There's so many aspects there's so many positive aspects to taking care of yourself from a fitness, from the way the way that you eat and the way that you use your body um, to, to produce. So that's very, very important. Now, you said something I want to touch on for the people that keep falling back into it. Let's Let's dumb that down and call it relapse. You don't have to beat yourself up over relapse. Relapse does not mean that you have to start over. It's actually one of the reasons that I actually don't even carry a sobriety date anymore because I, I, I was a chronic relapser since 2004. But I've got 17 years of experience of sitting in 12-step meetings and treatment and counseling sessions and cups of coffee with sponsors and mentors and, and reading positive books on, on how to live a spiritual and mentally fit life. But is somebody going to take me less serious because I say I've got two weeks of sobriety versus two months or two years or 12 years, even though I've got 17 years of experience on the battlefield. Now, having five years of sobriety has never helped keep me sober and kept me away from a relapse because, oh, well, I've got five years. I can't do it. But what I have seen time and time again is the person that did relapse that is afraid to come back or never comes back or even dies because they think that they have to give all their chips back and start over. Relapse, failure does not mean that you have to start over. Every day is a new day. You do not have to live in the shame or the guilt of the past. One of my favorite verses of all time is that his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Mm Mm-hmm. It's his faithfulness, and he provides brand new mercy. And the other one is, your goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Wow. So you're out here now, Sam, and uh, this Knowing You Matter conference, why don't you talk about that and what's happening today, later today? So I'll be speaking tonight at Knowing You Matter. It's at uh, Grace Bible Church at 6 p.m. But by the time this airs, yeah. it's probably going to be a little bit a um, little bit over. But uh, this will be the first annual Knowing You Matter event. So uh, if you follow me on social media, at Sam Anthony Speaks across all platforms. Or if you're on TikTok, you can follow me at Just Don't Die, which is also the name of the book. I will let you know when and where I'll be speaking next. Um, if anybody is interested in learning more about the book, which is co-authored by my wife, Rachel, Rachel, um, you can go to justdontdie.org and you'll be able to um, click on the link there. It'll take you to Amazon so you can get the book. Uh, There's also tons of resources on there uh, from AA to NA to Celebrate Recovery to Suicide Hotline. Uh, If anybody listening to this right now uh, feels like they might be a threat to themselves or others, I please, please, please encourage you um, to go get help and just know that Whatever it is that you're going through, not only has somebody else been through it, but they have found a way to live on from it. 
So we're going to put those links for definitely for your stuff in, and then some of those links as well for the, uh, the help that people can receive in the show notes of this episode. I don't, is there anything else you want to end on? So I'll actually use the book as a way to close. So the title Just Don't Die is a little bit in your face and to some people it might even be a little bit offensive, but it's actually got, it's actually got a double meaning. Just don't die. Whatever you're going through, anxiety, you got abused as a kid, depression, addiction, you're cutting yourself, your parents are fighting, you're struggling with porn, codependency, relationship issues, you're getting bullied. Whatever you're going through right now, we can fix just don't die because that's the one thing we can't fix. On the other side of that, every time I relapsed, every time I lost hope, every time I felt like I was alone and nobody would understand me, I died a spiritual death. I gave up hope on life and I just, I, I didn't see any end in sight. So just don't die that spiritual death. Um, so the person listening right now that, that feels like nobody understands them, uh, two things. Number one, it's never too late to turn your mess into a message and don't ever be afraid to give up the person that you know you are deep down inside because of what other people think you should be. One of the things, and I'm just going to draw this out of you, hopefully, one of the things that really blew my mind was you close with uh, the parable of the lost sheep. Mm. And would you, would you mind doing that again? <laughs> Not at all. Uh, so in Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the open field to go and find that one lost sheep? And I believe that he's using that parable as a reference for a lost soul, you know, for a lost person like myself. And uh, I remember that every time I got sober, every time I went to counseling and I, I, I got help from my depression and, you know, I, I always turned my back on God, but God never turned his back on me. And I'd be like, oh yes, I found God again. And that's not true at all because God wasn't lost. I was. And if God can find somebody like me, six arrests, three treatments, waking up in the ICU with a tube down my throat, handcuffed to a gurney, liar, thief, cheat, junkie. If he can find me, then he can find anybody. All right. Sam Anthony at Sam Anthony Speaks on Instagram. That's the website too, right? Yeah. SamAnthonySpeaks.com. Sam Anthony Speaks on Instagram and uh, Facebook and Just Don't Die on TikTok for my young followers. Thanks again for, uh, I'm just so grateful for this interview and um, look at to keeping in touch and uh, see what what God has in store for you, man. And just the, the, the next things for you. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, just from the conversations I've already had from the people that invited me out here, it sounds like I'll be back and it sounds like I'll be back soon too. So thank you. The impulse forum is a production of social clicks, digital marketing to get your business dominating on the digital street visit us online at socialclicks.com. That's socialklicks.com. A special thanks to our monthly mentor sponsors, Ed Carcary, general manager of the new Fuego Hot Hits at 97.1 FM in Santa Maria, and Mike's Record Rack. Check them out online at mikesrecordrackgb.com for a great selection of vinyl records, CDs, and tapes. This episode was written and directed by Kevin Colton and produced by Tim Motter. To become a sponsor of the Impulse Forum, visit us online at theimpulseforum.com. Now take the next step. Pursue the pulse today. Today.